this, um, but I like to make people aware just in case they missed it. Um, we don't take ourselves very seriously at all, but we do take the gospel of Jesus Christ very seriously. So the one thing that we hope you are impressed with in your time with us is not us, but Christ and his love and his cross and his power to save. Uh, we, we want very much for you to behold Christ our God. And so we hope that by God's grace and spirit, you're able to do that uh, as we worship this morning. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning or if you come this morning and you don't have a Bible, um, this is the part of the service where we give extended attention to the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And it will be helped if you can follow along with us in the Bible. So if you need one, just raise your hands and one of the ushers in the back will bring you one. And we're happy to have you. Uh, have a, a Bible this morning. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want very much for you to have one of your own. And so we invite you to take that Bible as our gift to you. Um, Brother Vernon, a couple of folks over here that, him as well. So we invite you to take that Bible as our gift to you. And um, we pray and hope that you would treasure God's word the way he's enabled us to treasure it uh, as his people. So with that, let me offer a word of prayer when we turn to God's word. Father, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We know your word, for you have set it down in writing, in this book, your Bible. It's a living book. It's active. It's sharp. We pray, O oh Lord, that by your word, you would give us life. You would instruct us and shape us. You would, Lord, change us. You would confront us by your word, and you would heal us by your word. Comfort and console, change and help. We are needy people, and most of all, we need your word. For in it we find life. In it we find Christ. In it we find help. So speak to us this morning. Your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, once again, as Peter announced earlier, we are working our way through our church's statement of faith. One of the most important things for you to know about any church that you would visit or consider joining or a member of is what that church believes. And historically, most churches have put some summary of what they believe in what's called creeds or confessions or statements of faith. The one that we use here at Anacostia River Church is the London Baptist Confession of 1689, as Peter told us so beautifully was written in 1689 in London by pastors. Uh, and so that's our statement of faith. And uh, we are coming to the conclusion of a long section of, of doctrines, of teachings that have to do with how God saves people, how it is he takes people from sin and makes them his own children. Uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've come to this doctrine which is practically important in the Christian life, this doctrine called assurance. Assurance. How we may be confident, how we may be sure that we really are Christ 
and Christ really is ours. Now, this is important because there, there are, as it were, uh, a couple of pitfalls related to this issue of assurance, a couple of ways that people think that, in fact, can be problematic or flat-out wrong. And the first statement in our sort of statement of faith, the first paragraph in our statement of faith, which you'll find in your bulletins, begins to address this for us by talking to us about a false assurance and a full assurance. As an assurance that's false... And there's an assurance that's full, that's true. So look with me at paragraph one there, printed in your bulletins. What page is that in the bulletin? Page 11. And let's read together paragraph one. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate persons may be deceived by erroneous, self-engendered notions into thinking that they are in God's favor and in a state of salvation, false and perishable hopes indeed. Yet all who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to his will, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in hope of the glory of God, knowing that such a hope will never put them to shame. You see the division that that statement makes. On the first couple of lines there, it speaks to us of persons who are temporary believers. They maybe went to church for a while. They maybe had some kind of profession. But, but they proved, as in the parable of the soils, that, that the seed of God's word was choked out. And so they didn't persevere. But, but they may be telling themselves, yeah, when I was five, when I was 12, uh, my mom took me to church and I responded to an altar call and I made a profession of faith. And, and since that time, they haven't darkened the doors of the church and they may still be telling themselves that they are in a state of grace and right relationship with God. That's a form of false assurance. And it speaks here of unregenerate persons, persons who have not yet been born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They too may have erroneous or wrong ideas. They may have self-engendered notions. They may have their own thoughts about what it means to be right with God, and those thoughts be false. So there are those who are falsely assured. But what the statement tells us and summarizes from the Bible is that there is a full and true assurance which may be had by all of God's people. And that's what we want to understand. That's what we want to pursue. How it is we may have a true confidence that we are right with God and really are in a state of saving faith. And to do that, we want to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have one of the Bibles that we've provided this morning and you have a page number, just shout that out so everyone can find that. 1018. Thank you, brother. Page 1018 uh, of the Bibles that we've provided. When I say chapter number, I'm referring to the big number in the Bible. And when I say verse number, I'm referring to the small number. And so we're going to begin in chapter 1, big number, verse 1, small number. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on kind of four, four points, four ideas. Number one is this. God gives us faith. Well, I should have put it this way. God gives us four things to assure us of our salvation. 
God gives us four things to assure us of our salvation. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Second point is this. We supplement those things in order to gain or to experience more deeply full assurance. We supplement what God has given us in order to experience more deeply or to gain full assurance. We see that in verses 5 to 7. Then in verses 8 and 9, we want to see what difference it makes as to whether or not we supplement what God has given us. What difference does it make? Whether or not we add to what God has given us. And then finally, we want to see that entrance into heaven, which belongs to the fully assured. That entrance into heaven, which belongs to the fully assured. See that in verses 10 and 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first thing we want to see are these four things that God gives us to assure us of our salvation. The first thing we might call parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, parity. You see it there, that's my word for what Peter says in verse 2. He writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable way to address Christians. Peter is writing to Christians all over the world, many of whom he has never met and doesn't know, and he says this thing about them. Your faith, which God has given you, is of equal standing with ours, the apostles. We tend to think of the apostles as kind of super-Christians. We tend to think of them as a sort of another category of Christian, another category of spiritual maturity and spiritual usefulness, and we may even assume that they have another level of assuredness. But remember who's writing here. 
It's the apostle Peter. It's the one who denied the Lord three times before his crucifixion. And it's the one that the Lord had to assure three times that, that he loved him or, or, that, or that Peter loved him. Now, if anybody knows anything about struggling with assurance, I'm sure it's the apostle Peter. Reading a book together called Sensing Jesus with, with my brother Andrew. And the writer there meditates on Peter in one section of the book. And he's talking about how Peter has gone on to be restored by the Lord. And he has this great little meditation on the rooster crowing. You remember how the Lord said to Peter, three times the rooster will crow and you will deny me, or you will deny me three times before the rooster crowed. And the writer says, imagine, even after having been restored by the Lord, how Peter must have reacted every morning when he heard the rooster crow. How there must have been with that first crowing on the day after he restored this trembling in his soul. That reminder of what I just did to the Lord and denying him when I promised him that I wouldn't. And how for many years later, he'd hear the crowing and he'd remember. But in time, by God's grace, the pain and the sting would be removed. Peter would grow into that more complete assurance of the Savior's love. That's who's writing this letter. And it's this same Peter who's telling us, all of us as Christians, you have a faith of equal standing with ours. There's no division, not one ounce of distinction between your faith, beloved, if you're a Christian, and any of the apostles' faith. There's not one ounce of distinction that separates them or makes them or makes anyone better in the faith than you who have obtained faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's remarkable. That, that same righteousness which belongs to God and has become ours through faith in Christ. Well, that righteousness they have is the very same righteousness that we have. It is the righteousness of God accounted to us, imputed to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that God had made Christ to be wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption for us. All the righteousness we will ever need before an infinitely holy God, we have in perfect measure through his infinitely perfect Son. And this faith puts us on equal standing with all the other saints. Now, how do we apply this? Well, very simply, it means we are free to stop comparing ourselves with other Christians, aren't we? One of the things that disturbs our assurance, that troubles us in the faith, is when we get that wandering eye and we start to look around at other Christians and we begin to imagine that they've got it so together. They never seem to stumble the way we stumble. Oh, I wish I could pray the way he prays. I just, you know, this guy shares his faith with such zeal and he's able to explain the Bible in this way and, and woe is me. Little old me. <laughs> that guy you're looking at, that lady you're looking at, her kids seem to be so nicely behaved. Her house is always together. 
Oh, she serves her husband and cares for him, and her husband delights in him, and oh, I just, I, 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 woe is me. No, this puts an end to all of that. We have this way of thinking that some Christians, maybe the apostles or some other Christians, the, the preacher or the pastor, if you, ever, if you ever begin to think that Pastor Thabiti is somehow better than you, ask my wife, right? She'll, she will help you adjust your perspective, right? She will lower it appropriately. Um, but we get this way of thinking that this person or that person must be better than us. Did you know that's an unbiblical way of thinking about people with faith? Verse 2 says, we are or we have equal standing in the faith. We're of like precious faith. And this faith we have obtained, notice the passive construction, it was given to us by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, by his righteousness, not our own. See, we can be confident of our salvation because God has given us a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Let me give you a second thing that God has given us that's meant to assure us. You see it there in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We can be confident of our salvation if we have faith in Christ because God uses his power to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? What a marvelous promise that is. Verse 3 is backed up by divine power. Divine is just a reference to God. God's power, divine power, is at work for us. And, and God, how many of you know, is all-powerful. He, he doesn't lack anything. He's, he's omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. There is nothing that is too hard for our God. He created everything that exists simply with a word. And what God decides to do with his power, notice in verse 3, is to give us Christians what we need for life and godliness. The Father gives us, notice, all things. That's a sweeping statement. He gives us all things necessary to the Christian life. Now, this, this is a wonderful application for us. I once saw, a, I don't know if it was a movie or a little YouTube clip or something, but it was a clip of this lady and this sister in the bathroom, and, and this other sister's in there with her, and they're doing whatever the girls talk about in the bathroom. You know, they always go in herds, right? And so they're in there talking, and uh, one girl is talking to the other girl about some guy who's interested, and she says, no, girl, he got too many ain't gots. She said, ain't gots? Ain't got no job, ain't got no car, ain't got, ain't got no house. You know, got too many eight gods, right? See, those two words, all things, they make a lie of the spiritual ain't gods. We, we lose confidence in our salvation when we focus on the things we ain't got, right? I ain't got this kind of spiritual gift. I ain't got this advantage in life. I ain't got the kind of job that lets me do this or that. I ain't got the kind of house that lets me do this or that. I ain't got a Bible, and I ain't got a bunch of books about the Bible so that I can understand this or that. On and on it goes. And that way of thinking harms our confidence. But verse 3 calls us to look away from our ain't gots. Actually, it tells us there ain't nothing we ain't got. When it comes to living in a way that pleases God, he has given us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness. This means two things, at least, two related truths. Number one, it means if we don't have something, then we don't need it in order to be godly. It means number two, if we need something for life and godliness, then God in his power will get it to us. If we don't have it, we must not need it. And if we need it, it must be on the way. For God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice there that word there. He granted it to us. He just gave it to us. He just handed it over to us out of his generosity. See, we can be confident of our salvation because God, number one, has given us a faith of equal standing with all the saints. And God, number two, has given us divine power that grants us everything we need for life and godliness. For parity, for power, number three, promises. God has given us great, exceeding, precious promises. See that there in verse 4? God gave us his precious and very great promises. Almost every time we struggle with assurance of our salvation, we've taken our eyes off the promises of God, haven't we? We began to to doubt the promises of God. We have forgotten the promises of God. We're no longer meditating on the promises of God. And verse 4 tells us that God's promises are precious and very great. And one reason that they are precious and very great to all the saints is because God keeps them. Keep your finger there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look over in chapter 3 verse 9. In the immediate context, Peter is writing there about the second coming of the Lord, which some people think God has promised, but he's not, he's not keeping. And in that context, Peter writes this, the Lord is not slow. I like the way the King James puts it. He's not slack. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. See, some people think that God is slow or slack in keeping his word, but he is not. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Jesus Christ is God's emphatic yes to everything he has promised his people. He's God's emphatic amen. Let it be to everything, every precious and very great promise that he has made to us. Now, I want to give you a homework assignment on this. I want to encourage you to go home this evening, spend some time this Lord's Day, just writing down, tracing out in the Bible the promises of God just to spend some time asking the Lord, what what have you promised your people? And to to meditate on them and to see how how great they are. If you need to, buy a promise book, little books that people sell of of nothing but promises. Some of our Bibles have in the front, in the introduction or in the back, a little appendix that that lists nothing but promises. Whatever, go online, look up promises of God, but, but, but meditate on what God has pledged to give his people and meditate knowing he is not slack concerning his promises, that all of them are yes and amen in Christ. Beloved, this is for our assurance. 
the parity that we have in the faith, the power that gives us the ability to live for God, and the promises of God are all for our assurance. There's a fourth thing here that I want us to see. He does all of those things. God gives us this parity in the faith, this equal standing. He gives us this divine power to live uh, a life of godliness. He gives us these very great and precious promises. Verse 4, notice the purpose, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This thing just keeps getting better and better. So God's purpose in saving us includes that we should partake or share in or experience the divine nature. That we should, as a consequence of his saving us, begin to share in his own character. And essence and being. This means, beloved, you are not, if you're a Christian, simply human. You are not just human. We say that all the time, and we know what we mean by that. We mean that we're fallible, and we're, we're broken, and we're liable to make mistakes, all of which are true, beloved, even of the Christian. But this text says that we are not only human, but we also partake, we taste of, we share in the the divine nature of God. We have not become gods, and we are not, as is blasphemously taught, we're not little gods, we're not demigods, but, but we are united to God. And this same God who saves us also dwells in us. This is another way of referring to our union with Christ. How does Paul put it in Galatians 2, verse 20? You know those well-known words? I have been, what, crucified with Christ? So it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? That's your biography. That's the truth by you. That's your birth certificate. I like that. I got an amen call this one. I like it when they help you. That's your birth certificate. Go on, make the sermon better. I like that. <laughs> Christian, you are not simply human. The God of the universe has taken up residence in you. And you and him. You remember how our Lord prays in John 17, verses 21 to 23, how he prays there that, Father, I, I want them to be united just as we are united, how, how I am in you and you are in me and, and we in them and them in us. That's what's happened to us. The moment when we were raised from death to life through faith in Christ, we were united to Christ. And he indwelled us by his Spirit. And so we partake of the divine nature. You are not merely human. And here's the application. We have to learn to think of ourselves this way, don't we? There's nothing for us to do with this except to embrace it, 
except to hold it, except to treasure it, except to preach it to ourselves and to, and to remember it. And, and notice the consequence of this there at the end of that verse. Because we are partaking in the divine nature, here he clarifies, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have a new life. And with that new life, we have new desires. We have a new life and new desires because we have new hearts. And, and by God's working in us, we have escaped the world's corruption because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. All that's left for us to do is to preach that to ourselves daily. We have escaped the world's corruptions. We, we get smudged by it. We get dirty by it. It gets on us, and sometimes we discover it in us, but, but we have fundamentally been cleansed from it. We have escaped it. That corruption does not belong to us. It belongs to the world, and the reason is we have a new nature. We partake in a divine nature. And so, Christian, do you actively think of yourself this way? Do you actively remind yourself of this truth? It's one of the ways God means to assure you that you are his through this parity, through this power, through his promises, and through this partaking of his nature. Now, I wonder if you notice something real quickly in both verse 2 and in verses 3 and 4. That everything that's said here that, that God does for our assurance, notice that it grows out of the gospel. It grows not out of ourselves, but it grows out of the message about the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 2, notice what he says. We've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not by our righteousness, not by things that we have done. Have we gotten this equal standing in the faith? No, it's, it's by God's own righteousness. It's by the righteousness of the Son of God. How does his righteousness become ours? Well, it's when we repent of our sin and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior. It's when we abandon ourselves for any hope of righteousness that would please God. It's when we give up on the idea that we're ever going to be good enough to please God and to earn his favor. It is when we recognize that even our best deeds are, they come together with unrighteous things, selfishness and other things that, that, that themselves are worthy of God's judgment. It's when we flee from our own righteousness and we cling to the righteousness of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And more than that, he lived for us. All of his obedience to the Father, he was providing to the Father in our place. So that, so that all of the perfect obedience that we owe God, Christ supplied. And he becomes our righteousness through faith. And by that faith, equal standing before God. Now, look in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 begins with his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse 4 begins with, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. But in the middle is the key phrase. Did you notice that? The divine power is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The, the precious promises are by the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, it's through the gospel. 
that these things, both the power and the promises, become ours and the partaking become ours. Beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand that God is calling you. You see it there in verse 4? He is calling you, notice, to do something, to, to share his own glory and excellence. God is calling you to share in his perfection. Not by you trying to be perfect, but by you receiving his son. And by receiving his son as your God and your Savior, God brings you into a share, into an experience of his glory and his excellence. Now, it may not be clear to you from this text. You maybe not ever thought about this before, but, but let me just sort of make it plain. Your greatest joy in this life and the life to come will only be had if you taste and enjoy this glory and excellence of God. Perfect perfection always produces perfect joy. God is that perfect perfection. He is offering himself to you as the source, the enduring source of an unending joy and satisfaction. You won't find it in relationships on earth. You won't find it in career. You won't find it in education. Those things may be wonderful for a while. You won't find it in your own reputation. You, you, you may think yourself great. You know, we're near as great and excellent and glorious as the God who made you, who you were made to know. Now, the reason you don't know him is because you have sinned against him. And in that sin, you have been separated from him. And because of that sin, you deserve not his excellence and his glory. You deserve, like all of us, his wrath and his judgment. But God, part of his excellence, part of his glory, is that he's loving and merciful and patient. And with the breath you just drew, he gave you more patience to turn to him, to trust in him, to believe in his son, and so be forgiven of your sins and hear this call to his excellence and his glory. It will be for your everlasting joy. Hell will be to your everlasting horror, but heaven will be for your eternal happiness. Trust in Jesus. Believe in him, and you will be saved. And all these things, a faith of equal standing, a power to live for God, the great, very great promises, and partaking in his divine nature will be yours through faith in Christ. Christian, this is already ours. This is what we stand on. All that God does for man's salvation, he does through this message of the gospel which we have believed. And it's by that gospel that we now don't base our hopes on things we make up. We don't base our hopes on conjecture, but on what God has factually done in Christ. So look with me at the second paragraph of our statement of faith. And notice how the statement of faith 
puts this for us in that, in that first sentence in particular. Let's just read that first sentence together. The certainty of salvation enjoyed by the saints of God is not mere conjecture and probability based upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith based upon the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That's yours. An infallible and unerring, a perfect assurance of faith based not upon us, but upon the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That's why it's so vital to preach the gospel to ourselves, especially when we doubt our salvation. It's the basis for our hope. But we build on that basis, which brings us to our second point. There's one thing that Christians are called to do in order to build upon this assurance. The Christian life often has these two halves. You have what God does in the Christian life, and you have then what Christians are called to do in the Christian life. And there's an order to it. God does what he does first and foundationally, and the Christian then is called to follow um, in, in accordance with what God has done in their life. The divine side always outweighs the human side. The divine side always comes first. So we've looked at the four things that God has done for us in verses 1 to 4. Now we want to consider the one thing we're called to do in verses 5 to 7. But let's start by noticing how verse 5 begins. For this reason. For this reason. What reason? Everything he's just said in verses 1 to 4. Because God has done what he has done, now we are enabled and now we are called to add to it. When we look at, when we look to strengthen our assurance, now notice we are not working for verses 1 to 4. We are working from verses 1 to 4. We're not looking to gain verses 1 to 4. We're looking to stand on verses 1 to 4, right? There's a world of difference. The difference is like trying to reach something on a very high shelf standing on boxes. You're wondering if the box will hold your weight, and maybe you're trying to get your balance right, and, and you know, you're reaching and you're trying to get there. And that, Don't do that. Don't do that at home. It's the difference between that and standing on a well-built scaffold that has a solid foundation on which you can walk back and forth, and, and if you need to, you can build higher in order to reach the thing you're trying to get. Verses 1 to 4 is a scaffold. It's not a, it's not a set of old boxes that you're trying to balance on. It's a scaffold on which we stand and on which we reach for this greater assurance. Now, as we look at these verses, I want us to start by looking at paragraph 4 of our statement of faith, because it, it teaches us something about the nature of the Christian life, and it helps us to avoid the error of Christian perfectionism. Look at paragraph 4, and let's read that together. True believers may find that their assurance of salvation fluctuates, sometimes more, sometimes less. They may prove neglectful in preserving it, as, for example, if they give way to some particular sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. Or strong temptation may suddenly spring upon them. Or God may see fit to withdraw the light of his countenance and cause darkness to envelop them. 
a course he sometimes takes, even with those who fear his name. Yet whatever happens, certain things inevitably remain with them. The new nature, which is born of God, the life of faith, the love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. And by reason of these and through the work carried on by the Spirit within them, the assurance of salvation may in due time be revived. In the meantime, the same influences preserve them from utter despair. Now, what's being said there? Well, we're being told the truth about the Christian life. It's up and down. It fluctuates. Our experience of assurance may go up and down. Sometimes strong, sometimes vibrant, sometimes low, sometimes weak. And there may be various causes of it. Sometimes sin, but not always because of sin. Sometimes because, as it says here, God has removed the light of his countenance. And he sometimes does that with those who fear his name. He has his purposes in that. And in, and in sort of removing the, the pleasure of his face, so to speak, we're made to tremble. And we're made to fear his name all the more. There are various reasons that we're up and down. But in the midst of it all, what we're called to do is to pursue certain qualities. You see how it goes in verse 5? For this reason, supplement your faith. You see it there, verse 5? For this reason, make every effort to supplement. We're adding to what Christ has done for us. Not because it's insufficient, but that we might experience it more deeply. It's not because this work is inadequate. It's because as human creatures, we need to actually grow into the fullness of his work. And you see the text there says, make every effort. This is how we know we're talking about our responsibility now. This is, this is where effort applies in the Christian life. We, we are not justified, we're not saved because of any effort that we make. But once having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're now called to pursue, to pursue Christ and the things of Christ. And that requires effort, including our assurance. And so we're to supplement that faith. Well, some of you know what supplements are. You buy them every time you go to GNC. Yeah. Vitamins are supplements to our diet, right? We don't get enough zinc or get enough calcium or whatever it is, and so maybe we take that little pill that, that gives us a little bit more zinc to, in our diet. It supplements our diet. Or some of us still have delusions of being bodybuilders. So we go to GNC, and we spend a month's worth of salary on that big protein drink, and we come home, and we drink that protein drink, and, and if you're like me, your belly just keep going out this way, right? Why? Well, it's because you, you, we can't get enough protein in a natural diet to feed the muscles that the muscles might grow. The muscles need something added. They need a supplement. And in taking that protein supplement, we give them what they need to build mass and to build, to build muscle. So it is in the Christian life. Verse 5 tells us, 5 through 7 tells us that we are to supplement our faith with seven things. Let's read those verses or look at those verses. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And what we're getting here is a, is a picture of a growing, assured Christian. The seven qualities listed here, notice they move from the internal 
to the external. So the internal includes virtue and knowledge and self-control, but then that expresses itself in relation to others around them, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. It's a complete, it's a composite picture of both the, the inside and the outside of a, of a person who is growing in their knowledge of Christ and thereby growing in their assurance of salvation. These are the things we are to pursue, to supplement our faith with. Virtue can be translated as excellence. That's how it's translated in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul says that whatever things are excellent, these are the things we are to think about. It's the same word there here, but, but virtue refers to someone who is morally good. It, it refers to someone of genuine moral excellence. You ever heard somebody say something like, man, he's really good people? You know, those, are, those are really good folks. They're talking about virtue. They're talking about a, a, a moral excellence that is, that is internal to the person. And we're to add that to our faith. We're to add virtue or goodness to our faith. And then we're to add to virtue knowledge, which, of course, refers to things we know, right? Facts and information and even skills, abilities, know-how. That's a, that's a part of knowledge. And the knowledge that's being spoken of here, of course, is the knowledge of God and, and, and the life that God has called us into. We're to be adding to our faith, not only virtue, but we're to be getting to know God better and better and getting to know his ways better and better and endeavoring to live that knowledge out in our relationship with him. Proverbs 15, 14 says, The heart of him who, under, who has understanding seeks knowledge. But the mouths of fools feed on folly. Proverbs 18, 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So everywhere the wisdom literature calls us to pursue knowledge. And then in the prophetic literature in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, you know these words, my people, what, are destroyed, why? For lack of knowledge. And you know how God goes on there? He says, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Well, the abandonment of knowledge is really self-destructive, isn't it? Particularly the knowledge of God. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That, that's to be our heart if we want this full assurance. Everything else is lost compared to knowing Christ. That's our ambition, to know him better and to love him more than anything else we know and love in all the world. And it leads to assurance. But then we add something to that. You notice there, self-control. We know what that is, right? Right? Okay, well, self-control is the ability <laughs> to control or govern our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, and our actions. It's, it's according to Galatians 5, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Self and it's an essential characteristic to Christian adulthood, Christian maturity. This is why in Titus chapter 2, Titus writes there that the older women are to teach the younger women. One of the things they're to teach them is self-control. And that the younger men are to be taught self-control. 
And, and this is why it appears in the list of qualifications for elders. Your, your elders, your pastors, are to be people of self-control. They're not to be given to brawling and temper tantrums and, and being run over by whatever they feel. And that's what it's like not to have self-control. You are run over by everything you feel and think and desire. So Proverbs 25, 28 puts it this way. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The walls of ancient cities were their best defense. They they would retreat into the walls, close up the walls, and, and everything that was coming against them would be outside the wall, and from that wall, they could defend themselves. Now, without a wall in the ancient world, you could be attacked from all sides, all of a sudden, without notice, and you'd be overrun by those marauders and those attackers raiding the village, raiding the city. And when we lack self-control, it's like our desires and our thoughts and our actions, they are marauding enemies that, that run through our heart, that run through our lives, that, that ransack our lives without our having any defense against ourselves. And so we're called to this self-control. And not only that, but steadfastness. Now we begin to interact with the world around us. And steadfastness means we stand firm. We're, we're resolute. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. No, as in, as in 2 Timothy 2, 24, we're, we're able to answer those who oppose us not out of a stubbornness, a hard-heartedness, a, a meanness, a callousness, an inflexibility. That's sinful. Don't, don't confuse that with steadfastness. And Christians do that sometimes. I just stand for the truth. I just told them the truth. We got to defend the truth. Yeah, but you ain't got to be nasty about it. So 2 Timothy 2.24 says to answer those who oppose you with gentleness, the Lord might grant repentance. And sometimes when I see people who are just so argumentative and so dogmatic and I'm just banging them with the truth, you know, sometimes I think they're pretty insecure in the truth, actually. They're afraid of being asked a question they can't answer. They're not so rooted in the truth that they can actually listen to opposition and not be swayed. Well, that's what steadfastness is. And beloved, we swim in a sea of unbelief. We swim against a tide of opposition as Christian people. But we're meant to be rooted. And we're meant to be rooted with all these other virtues, including gentleness and love. And notice also godliness. Godliness refers to someone who is devoutly religious. And it'd be good for us to recover the word godly, to use it more frequently. And to mean by it, someone who is genuinely religious. I think in some circles, religious as a word has taken a, it's gotten a bad connotation. Uh, we, we think of people who are just, oh, they're just religious, right? They're just, they're just formally religious. And there is a false godliness, right? So the Bible speaks of, a, 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 of people who, who profess godliness but deny the power of it. There is an external emptiness that we are to be warned against. But what godliness exhorts us to is a genuine piety a genuine devotion to the Lord, a genuine religiosity that's informed not just by externals and being Pharisees, but really is informed by a knowledge of God, by a love for God, and a desire and steadfastness to do the things of God. Godliness is a good word. Being religious is a good thing if we have the knowledge of Christ. 
And we're to add that to our faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness. And this, this godliness, it touches on every part of life. Right, turn with me to 1 Timothy. And keep your finger there in 2 Peter. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. It's back to your left, a couple of books. If you see Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Come back. I want you to notice how godliness runs through the letter of 1 Timothy and how it touches on every part of life. It touches, for example, on how we dress. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. You notice what's said there? Am I in the right place? Women should adorn themselves. That's chapter 2. Yeah, chapter 2. I ought to give you the right address. All right, so chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says in the beginning of verse 9 that women should adorn themselves, how? In respectable apparel, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. His point is that you can't wear jewelry and that you can't wear nice clothes. That, that's not it. He's drawing some distinctions here about a worldliness that, that sort of boasts in that and only does that and does it in a worldly way. His, his point is that, no, there, there is a way that godly people dress. They dress with good works, and they dress with modest apparel. That's godliness. Or it touches our speech, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Look over in chapter 4, big number, verse 7, little, no, little number. Where Paul says to Timothy there, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So, so what we talk about, what we teach, it's not the irreverent, it's not the silly, it's, it's the godly. Or, or godliness touches on our relationship with family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 4. There now he's talking about caring for widows. He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, the children or grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, if you have a mother or a father, particularly a mother who's lost their, their husband, lost their father, so on and so forth, and you, you profess to be godly, we care for them. As children and grandchildren, we make some return. We, we pay back what they have given us and raising us all of our hard-head years, right? That's godliness. It touches on everything. We are to be devoutly religious in the best sense of the word. And we add to that, notice back in, in uh, 2 Peter 1, we add to that brotherly affection. This warm, family-like love. Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with a brotherly affection. I love doing the membership interviews over these last couple weeks. And a number of you said something along these lines. And I was particularly encouraged with the way my brother now put it. I asked him, how was his time at ARC so far? And he says, it's like a for real family. Okay, that's brotherly affection. That, that for real warmth, that for real love, that really caring for each other and being involved in each other, that, that's what we are to pursue and to add to our faith and virtue and knowledge so that we might have full assurance. Christ spoke of this in John 13, didn't he? He says, the world will know you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. Isn't it interesting that the outside unbelieving world becomes a source for our assurance when we love each other. They say those people have been with Jesus. 
You see them praising the Lord, loving each other from all walks of life? That only happens because of Jesus. And so even they testify to our assurance when our brotherly affection is seen. And finally, Paul ends with the greatest of Christian virtues, add love. If ever in doubt as to what love means, we need only consider 1 Corinthians 13, right? That all of those things which love does is to be marked in the Christian. So let me give you a couple of application questions as we come quickly to close with our last few verses. How are these qualities manifesting in our lives? When you look at these seven things, how do they show up in your life? The second question, what efforts do we need to make in order to grow in one or more of these? Which needs the most growth? He says, make every effort to add these things. What effort do we need to make? And are we pursuing these things while keeping in mind what God has already done for us in Christ? We pursue these things, keeping in mind what God has done. Otherwise, we're pursuing our own kind of perfection. And it will have the opposite effect. It will make us less sure because we will see our imperfections if we're honest. But if we do this, keep it in mind what Christ has done, that we're adding to his work that we might experience a full assurance, well, then we can give ourselves to him fully. Well, what difference does all of this make, this supplementing, this adding to our faith? Peter gives us a profile to pursue. Well, so what? Verses 8 and 9 give us the so what. Right there, Peter writes, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I love the way verse 8 starts. See there it says, it writes about these qualities and are increasing in them. I love that because it means that he's not writing about perfection. The fact that they are increasing means we ain't there yet, right? There's room for our growth, and there's tolerance for our imperfection, right? And our statement of faith kind of puts it that way. In, in the third paragraph, it says there, the infallible assurance of salvation is not an essential part of salvation. That's an important sentence. You're not saved because you feel assured that you're saved. And being saved doesn't require that you feel assured. It's not an infallible part of our salvation. For a true believer may wait for a long time and struggle with many difficulties before he attains to it. It is not a matter of extraordinary revelation, for if he makes a right use of the means of grace, things like preaching and prayer and reading God's Word, and is enabled by the Spirit to know the things that believers receive freely from God, he may well attain to it. That, that kind of thinking, I think, is packaged up in this phrase of increasing. You have these qualities and you're increasing. And notice the result. They keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. You, you want to be sure. You want to be effective. You want to be fruitful in your relationship with God. Then pursue these virtues. 
They have a keeping power, a preserving power. They keep us from ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. This is a clear biblical guarantee to success in the Christian life. Pursue these qualities based upon the work that Christ has done for us. But notice in verse 9, those who lack these qualities. The Bible says they are so nearsighted, they are blind. Sort of pulling things so close, at some point you got to say, man, you can't see. Right? They've got to inspect their lives so closely for any Christian graces, having left these things off, that, that it, they're, they're blind. They, they, can't, they can't see the work of Christ in their life. It doesn't, say, that doesn't mean that they're not Christians. It means that they can't see that they're Christians. Because look at the result. Look at what it says in, that, in verse 9. Being so blind, they have forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's terrible. It's terrible to have left off the Christian graces for so long that, that when you start to inspect your life, you, you can't see any, any qualities, any fruitfulness, and, and you forget, you forget, you, you forget with weeping often and terror that your sins have been forgiven, that Christ has taken them away, that they have been nailed to the cross and haven't forgotten that your sins were forgiven. There's no, there's no choice then but to lack assurance. Do you see? The person who pursues these things, they, they see clearly. They, they see out from the gospel and out from the cross onto their own lives, and they see things that give them confidence. The person that doesn't pursue these things is, is looking around, and he's bringing everything close, everything close, everything close, to the point where he's blind, spiritually blind, and has forgotten that Christ has nailed his sins to the cross. And so they lack assurance. Listen, beloved, nothing disturbs our confidence and hope in Christ like remembering sin while forgetting the Savior. Nothing troubles the soul more than remembering your sin while forgetting your Savior. And the person who does not supplement their faith will forget their Savior. And, beloved, the fruitless Christian is a fretful Christian. The one who's not bearing fruit in these qualities will fret the standing of their soul. And that's the difference these qualities make. It's the difference between spiritual assurance and spiritual amnesia. So let me ask those questions again, and I gave you the other point. How are these qualities manifesting themselves in our lives? What efforts do we need to make to grow in one or more of these? Which do we need to grow more in? And are we pursuing these things while keeping in mind what God has already done us because the final outcome of such effort is glorious. Look there in verses 10 and 11. Peter writes there, therefore brothers be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you practice these qualities you will never fall for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 10, when he says, be all the more diligent and make your calling and election sure, he's just restating what he said earlier when he said, make every effort to do these things. He's saying, prove that God has called you and chosen you by being diligent in producing these God-like qualities. And here's the promise. 
for, the, for you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is your practice, beloved. This is what we give ourselves to, even imperfectly, but growing in them. If this is the habit of our life, then we cannot fail to receive what Christ has purchased for us, the salvation of our souls. You will never fall. In fact, verse 11, in this way, by practicing these qualities, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, that's the definition of assurance. An abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are some who will make it into the kingdom, but their clothes, their robes will be singed by the flames of hell. They will have just made it in. And they will be glad that they just made it in. They, they won't rejoice any less than the rest of us. <laughs> Woo, I made it, y'all. It was, it was hot on the way here, but, you know, I made it. And they will rejoice. But God holds out a promise of something more. He holds out to us the promise of going into the kingdom richly, abundantly, that the way into the kingdom is open wide to us. And the, and the street that we parade in this triumphal entry is wide. And the throngs of heaven rejoice to see us come into the kingdom of God. There is an entrance into the kingdom of God which is wide and full and glorious and joyful and confident. This is an entrance that those of the greatest saints have on their deathbed. When facing death, they don't shrivel back in fear. They don't lament what they didn't do. They long to see the face of Christ. They long to go to heaven. They long to be with their Savior and their King, and they ain't doubting. They're not stressing. They're not, they're not regretting. They're not wondering what if. They're not wondering if there's some box that they left unchecked. No, they have a rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven, which is to say that when they near that portal called death, they run into it because they know on the other side is life. Life with Christ, life in the kingdom, an abundant life, the life that was promised, the very great and precious promise of one day seeing the face of God and rejoicing in his love. The life that came as a result, not of their works, but was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and, and provides the righteousness of Christ. They, they go into that doorway saying, I messed up, but Jesus paid it all. I, I, I brought my sins to the cross, and Christ took them away. And so, and so they come in richly singing the glories of Christ. God holds forth an abundant entrance into his kingdom that all may have, and the assurance of his kingdom, if we but trust in the finished work of Christ and then go on in the calling of Christ. May it be so. And may we all be confident, and may we all have this entrance into his kingdom. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you have children here who struggle to be sure. Help them to know, oh Lord, that they are not defective because of such struggles, 
They're not bad Christians because of such struggles. They may not necessarily be trapped in any sin because of such struggles. But you have purpose in their conflicts, in their struggles, to be sure. One such purpose is to draw them near to yourself and to make them more dependent upon the cross of Christ. So we pray for anyone who struggles here even now that you turn their eyes away from themselves and let them look back, O Lord, to the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, to the righteousness that he provides and the atonement that takes away sin. And we pray, O Lord, that looking at Christ they might find themselves looking forward to glory. And they might pursue the things, O oh Lord, that, that bring confidence in the faith. Grant them, O oh Lord, we pray, the ability to add to their faith, virtue, the virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control steadfastness, to steadfastness godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, brotherly love, Brotherly love, that great love, that agape love that you have called us to. And grant that those, Lord, who are experiencing right now confidence in the faith, grant that they would be helpful counselors and guides to those who don't. Keep us, O Lord, from self-righteousness. Grant that we would know that any assurance we have is really a matter of your grace. And grant, O Lord, that we would continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, that we might remain rooted and firm in your saving work. Lord, we would that all would be saved and that all would be sure. But this will only happen by your grace. So show us your grace and your spirit's power, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.